the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 19, Contested Decision, Part 2. Susan climbed the rock rubble almost as fast as she had descended. It felt like she weighed only ten pounds. She lingered for a moment at one rock. It was wet and sparkled with tiny shards of glass. Rawr! She roared. She grabbed the trunk of a young tree and swung herself up on the top of the promontory. Ah! Heather gasped in surprise. She stood behind Aaron, who held the Remington up with very shaky arms. Blake stood behind his mother, clutching her coat. Everyone began speaking at once. Oh, my God! It's you! I thought you were him! We thought you were dead! What happened? Where, where is he? Is he dead? Oh, I was so we scared! We didn't hear a shot! Uh, you just ran over! What do we I, do? I, I didn't... I, I didn't know, Mom! I'm so sorry! If he comes is back... Is he coming back? Quiet! shouted Susan. She flailed her arms out like an angry Moses parting the Red Sea. She let the silence flow back in for a moment. The family stood in a little cluster, staring at Susan. She was so frustrated with them all that she could have slapped each one of them to the ground. No, he is not dead. Not yet, but he soon will be. Now we are all getting out of here. Understand? She half shouted her last word. Each of the family members nodded timidly, but rapidly. Good. Now, start breaking this stuff down and get packed. Blake, take down that tarp. Aaron, roll up those sleeping bags. Heather. Go through his bag and take anything that looks useful. Food, tools, whatever. Susan retrieved her revolver and replaced it in her waistband. She put the Winchester on her backpack. I'm going to burn his coat and boots in case he manages to get up here, which I doubt. She grabbed his cape first. The foxtails caught her eye. She yanked one of them off of the hem. She would add another trophy tail to her gun. She tossed the cape on the fire. The yellow flames leapt up. She snatched up Kirk's heavy coat. While going through his pockets, she smelled that odd smell. She took a deeper breath. Old cigarette smoke. That was the odd smell back at the junkyard. That's where he lived. You all keep working. I'm going to check something out. When I get back, I want everything ready to go. All packed up. No excuses. Aaron, if anyone approaches you, shoot them. What? I can't just then shoot the ground in front of them. But do not let them come close. If I hear a shot, I will come running and shoot them for you. I am in no mood for anything. She handed Heather Kirk's big revolver. Heather shook her head to refuse. Susan took Heather's hand and slapped the revolver into it. I'm not asking you. I am telling you. While I am gone, you may have to use this. You have to protect your family. All you do is point the sight at the evil man and squeeze the trigger. But how do I know if he's evil or not? If he's not, he'll keep his distance. If he keeps coming closer, he's evil. Shoot him. Now, everyone, get busy. Susan spun on her heel and marched off toward the junkyard. Halfway there, out of sight of the promontory camp, her legs started to feel numb. Her shoulders ached. Her left knee buckled, sending her crumbling into the snow. Oh, what's going on? She wondered if Kirk's choking had deprived her brain of oxygen. Was she going to pass out? 
She tried to stand, but her legs weren't listening. The best she could do was crouch on hands and knees. Everything around her spun as long as her eyes were open. For several long minutes, she stared down at the snow, watching it twist and reset, twist and reset. She was too weak to move. She tried to concentrate. How did she get there? She knew she had fought with Kirk and left him to die on the rocks, but she couldn't remember how she got down to the rocks. Then she couldn't remember how she got back up. She felt a sob welling up in her throat, but coughed hard instead. She refused to cry. Evil men deserve no tears. Her hand patted her coat pocket, looking for her touchstone of a world beyond the chaos of the day. The pocket was empty. She remembered seeing her jar bounce over the edge, the glass on the rocks. It was gone. She was alone. A wave of aloneness flooded through. She felt like the last woman on earth, a cold, hard earth. The sense of abandonment was twisting into a panic. She closed her eyes and tried to clear her mind. She tried to picture nothing. Visions of a crystal-blue canyon defied her order for an empty blackness. She forced herself to breathe slowly. One, two, three, four. Breathe deep. One, two, three, four. She sat up on her knees. She could feel her arms again. She picked up her rifle from the snow. She rose to her feet unsteadily. She could feel her legs again. After several more deep breaths, she still felt weak, but better. For a moment, she thought she ought to abandon her trip to the junkyard. Perhaps she had suffered some sort of oxygen deprivation and ought to put her diminished energies into getting far away. She remembered Heather, Blake, and Aaron. She was not the last person on Earth. They were still there, and they needed whatever food Kirk might have stashed. Trekking over the hills would consume energy. After a few more deep breaths, she continued to the junkyard. There were no footprints in the snow in front of the garage, so she figured he came and went from the back. Between rows of derelict cars parked behind the building, she saw a well-trodden path in the snow. It led up to a turquoise-blue car hood leaning against the wall. Behind the hood, there was a hole in the siding. She had to duck under to get through. The inside of the dark garage smelled of decaying wood, wet dirt, old oil, and that odd leftover cigarette smell. Her eyes adjusted to the dimness. She could see that the interior was cluttered with engines sitting atop barrels or crates, twisted frames or junk that defied categories. He sure as heck didn't live in here. She cast an eye at the ceiling. Is there an upstairs? Near the hole in the wall that she entered through, a ladder climbed the wall. She pulled her rifle around. Who knew if Kirk had any stay-at-home accomplices? If so, how would they know it wasn't Kirk coming home? There was no trap door over the opening. She climbed as silently as she could. When near the top, she popped up for a quick look, then ducked down. She saw no one obvious. Still, it was dark up there. The only light came from a small window in the gable. She took another quick peek. Satisfied that there was no one else in the loft, she climbed up, 
rifle ready. The only place tall enough to stand upright was in the center aisle. Boxes filled the angle space beneath the sloping rafters. A small wood stove stood in the middle of the loft. It was still warm. A stack of small logs and lumber scraps lay nearby. Along the back wall, shelves contained miscellaneous canned goods. She found a sagging bed with an ironwork headboard. Atop the bare mattress sat a tangle of blankets. The Baron sure didn't live like a king. Hanging on the window wall, she saw a shield, like a knight might carry. It was black, with a red dragon painted on it. Next to that hung a very long sword. It was far too heavy to be of any practical value. Several ornate daggers lay on little shelves. They were also too heavy, encrusted with gems or intertwined dragons. Hmm. Couldn't skin an animal or cut any wood with any of these, she thought. A leather top hat hung on a peg. It had a dragon embossed into the crown. Around the wall hung studded leather armbands, wide leather belts, tall leather boots, and a pair of shiny armored gloves. This guy was totally weird. Turning back, she saw a long pink dress hanging behind the iron headboard. It was a petite size, with a lot of fluffy tulle and lace at the skirt. Susan pulled out a portion of the dress with the muzzle of her rifle. Little dragons were embroidered on the deeply scooped satin bodice. Pinned to the rafters were torn-out catalog pictures of pretty blonde women wearing the satin dragon dress. A cold shiver ran down her back. Heather had narrowly escaped a fantasy hell. Susan's fist clenched in silent rage. The depravity of man revolted her. For a moment, Susan imagined revenge via trashing Kirk's lair. She would smash his little stove, punch holes in his water barrel, and maybe set fire to the whole place. Then she realized that Kirk would be dead of exposure or blood loss soon. He would never know his lair had been destroyed. Something about the shortages of the outage made her reluctant to destroy any resources, even if they once belonged to an evil man. Maybe some poor soul might find this place and survive. She resolved to leave the place intact, but she would take whatever she and her group could use to survive. Kirk owed them that. She found a cardboard box and began taking canned goods off the shelf. Did he steal all this stuff from abandoned houses? Or did he rob people? Cans with proteins like tuna and corned beef looked more important than vegetables. There were packages of FEMA biscuits. The box soon became too heavy to hold with one arm. She found a little box on a shelf. Rounds for Kirk's Winchester. Another box looked like it contained bullets for his big shiny revolver. She had no idea what she would do with the extra guns. She could only fire one at a time. She doubted she could ever get Heather to be usefully armed. Aaron might. Maybe Blake. Even if not, the guns would have some barter value. She found extra matches, a real knife, a roll of thin rope, a pair of binoculars. She had to ferry her salvage down the ladder in three trips. It was far too much to carry at one time. A wooden crate was just the right size to carry it all. 
she tipped it over to dump out the random oily machine parts. With her goods inside, the crate was too heavy to lift and walk with. Susan walked among the stacks of junk, looking for something like a wheelbarrow or a garden cart. Those seemed unlikely in a garage devoted to cars, but one never knew. Behind a stack of small metal drums, she spotted a pair of handles sticking up. Pushing the rusty barrels aside, she found a two-wheel handcart, still laden with boxes. The tires were still good. All of the dust made her sneeze. The wooden crate fit nicely on the cart while it was laying down. The little tires wouldn't be any good in the snow. She needed a sled, not wheels. More poking around in the junkyard turned up two mismatched pieces of wide chrome trim. They resembled flimsy metal skis. With the rocker panel trim attached to the wheels of the handcart, she was ready to pull her load back to the group. A length of rope let her get ahead of her improvised sled. She looked over her shoulder as she passed the last line of junk cars. The old garage looked desolate, even pitiful. She hoped whoever found it as a shelter would be a good person and not another evil one. The sled and its contents clanked and rattled more than Susan liked. The noise was a good forewarning for the family, however. As Susan approached, the three of them stood in a little cluster behind their backpacks. Aaron stood somewhat ready with the Remington to her shoulder. I thought it was you, Aaron said as a defense for not having the rifle aimed at the intruder. You didn't see anything, did you? Susan cast a glance toward the edge of the promontory. No, Aaron said. I peeked over the edge, but I didn't see anything. Good. Looks like you're packed and ready. We found more food in his pack, said Heather, and some other things, too. We just can't carry it all. She pointed to their three packs, fuller than Susan recalled. Another pile of tarps and gear sat nearby. Susan pointed to her sled. I found some more things we can use back at the junkyard. Wow, Aaron walked up to examine the sled. You made this, didn't you? Out of junk. That's so cool. Yeah, well, I don't know how long it'll hold together, but it'll get us a ways. Pile on that other stuff. We can tie it all down. Susan led them along the edge of the power line clearing. It made pulling the sled easier. Susan and Heather walked side by side, each with a rope around their waist that went back to the sled. Aaron and Blake walked behind the sled, each with a rope tied to the back of the sled. Their job was to keep tension on the ropes to check the sled's speed on the downhill slopes. For a long time, no one spoke. That was fine with Susan. The silence helped her concentrate on better things picturing a warm, crackling fire, or the smell of fresh-baked bread, anything to keep the image of Kirk's bloody face out of her mind. Despite the presence of the other three, Susan felt isolated and alone. The world seemed huge, and the distances to cross seemed too wide. I, I, I don't know what to say, Heather broke the silence. Susan sagged at the intrusion. 
I feel like I have to say something, but saying thank you sounds almost trivial. That's okay, Susan didn't look up. I just couldn't let it happen. Don't look at me. Keep looking around. Scan the edge of the woods. We don't know if anyone else is out in these woods. Oh, I'm sorry. Heather gave a long, sweeping look at the far side of the power line cut. And keep your hand near the trigger. You need to be ready to swing it up to your shoulder in a heartbeat. If we see anyone, they're staying at least twenty yards away. Heather nodded and adjusted her grip on the Winchester. Do you think there are others uh, like him uh, out there? No idea. This certainly isn't all his territory, like he said. So who knows? I, I still can't believe it. It all happened so fast. I'm normally a very cautious person. There was just something different. He was like, well, you know, the way he talked, all kind of fancy and polite, like something out of a storybook. I was totally not thinking creepy guy. Well, don't be too hard on yourself, Susan said. He caught me off guard, too, with his fairy tale manners. If he acted like the thug that he really was, I would never have let him stay anywhere near us. I should have kept my gun ready and on him all the time. Maybe I should be apologizing to you. Heather flashed a brief, humble smile. They trudged along in silence for a while. Pulling the sled uphill was hard work. There never was a bungalow, was there? Heather said faintly. Doubt it. He lived in that run-down little garage with all the junk cars. If he really knew about empty houses, why would he live in a dump like that? Heather's face went pale. Oh, my God! If there never was a house, he might have planned to kill us all after he— Or worse, Susan added. He'd have kept you as a slave in his squalid little junk castle. The rest of us, however— were useless mouths to feed, or not. She resolved to keep the detail of Kirk's medieval fantasy to herself for a while. Heather was already upset. Sending her into a meltdown would do no one any good. Oh, my God! Heather looked back at her kids. Blake trudged with his head down. Aaron gave a weary little wave to her mother. Oh, my God! she whispered to herself. Susan held up her fist for everyone to come to a stop. They were atop a hill. They could see down the cut. With the binoculars, she studied the two little houses at the base of the hill. Looks like pads in the snow down there, Susan said. One or both of those houses are occupied. We should go down through the woods so we're not visible. The route downhill through the woods was as challenging as the uphill had been hard work. Heather joined Blake and Aaron at the back to act as brakes for the sled. Susan steered through the trees. She could hear them talking, quietly, amongst themselves. Aaron spoke in rapid-fire bursts of statements and questions. Blake's voice had a plaintive whine to it. Heather was trying to sound soothing. Susan kept her mind focused on picking out the least complicated path for the sled. It didn't turn easily. Near the bottom of the hill, Susan led them through a finger of woods south of the two houses. She saw no signs of movement at either house. Heather took her place up front, pulling the sled. They're doing pretty good, considering, Heather whispered. 
she pointed discreetly back at Aaron and Blake. Susan felt like she was becoming heartless. How Heather's kids were handling things had not crossed her mind. Oh, that's good, I guess. I was worried about Aaron, Heather continued. She's kind of at that age. I think it helped that he didn't actually, you know. Susan wasn't in the mood for conversation. She wondered how they would all get across the expanse of I-91 without leaving obvious tracks. Blake, though, he's pretty shook up. I don't think he was taking any of this seriously until he thought I was going to get hurt. That really freaked him out. Susan edited her thoughts while she scanned the highway with the binoculars. She deleted words like stupid jerk, self-centered moron, and lippy twerp who needs a beatdown. She settled for, things are serious, so he'd better start taking them seriously. Oh, he is. I don't think you'll have any more trouble with him. Hey, Susan lowered her binoculars and pointed. There's a path across the highway over there. Someone else has crossed it. Maybe the people in those houses? Heather guessed. Could be. Let's cross on their path. That should be a whole lot easier. And who's to know? I had no idea how we'd hide the ski marks from the sled. The trudge path was several feet wide. Several different types of boot prints marked the snow. After a quick check for vehicles, Susan hurried them across the interstate. The trudge path led up the next hill, through the power line cut. Looks like people have some regular business this way. Susan studied her map. There were no roads connecting the houses along the highway to the town of Vernon along the river. People were making their own roads. The trudge path followed the power line cut. Susan found some comfort in the trail. It was a faint sign of civilization. Susan didn't mention to the others that the hill that they were climbing was 400 feet higher than the road. Some information can be demoralizing. Heather groaned as she pulled on the sled ropes in unison with Susan. I never thought of... We're almost to the top, Susan tried to sound encouraging. Canned goods as being this heavy. Morale collapsed once they reached the crest. Oh, no, gasped Aaron. Another mountain? Heather and Blake moaned in harmony. The power line threaded down the hill that they stood upon, then rose again, roller coaster like up the next hill. The map said the crest was forty feet shorter, but it looked equally as tall. I don't mean to complain, said Heather, catching her breath, but I don't think we're up to climbing another one just like this one. Not today. I hear you, Susan said. I'm beat too. What do you say we go halfway down? See that ledgy strip? I bet we can find some level places to set up camp for the night. Many readers have commented that one of the things they like about the siege story is the realism. Now, there's always a few contrary voices. A few have complained that the Martin character, for instance, isn't macho Rambo enough. I do recognize that there is a sizable audience for those who want super-capable, super-confident Rambo heroes. My stories don't tend to please that audience. Yeah, that's how it goes. 
In the Siege stories, I have intentionally tried to write the characters acting and reacting like real people, not idealized stereotypes. <laughs> I had one reader who lightly scolded me for writing, in book two, that Martin didn't tell his wife Margaret right away about Trish flashing her red bra around. I tried to tell her that Martin doesn't make the ideal decisions now and then. He's a normal guy. Sometimes normal people opt to ignore something like Trish's flirtation ploy, thinking that it was too minor to merit the can of worms that would come from exposing it. Was that a perfect decision? Meh, probably not. But it's a normal human one. Anyhow, back on topic, realism. Another thing that I had noticed from reading many prepper fiction stories was how completely unfazed the heroes were after surviving terrifying events, typically a life-or-death firefight. They would usually emerge the victor, blow the smoke away from the muzzle of their hot rifle, and saunter off to rescue the fair damsel. Real people who have experienced such life-or-death events describe a sort of exhaustion crash that occurs afterward. During a life-or-death event, the adrenal glands dump a whole lot of adrenaline into the body. This gives muscles extra energy, focuses some senses, etc. All good stuff for fight-or-flight responses. But the human body can only take so much afterburner. After the events have passed, the body goes through a sort of sugar-high crash. Muscles feel exhausted, the senses scale back to almost fainting levels. Of course, some professionals, like soldiers, police, and firefighters, who regularly face such stresses, get better at managing their adrenaline so there's less crash after the event. But there's usually still something. A city girl like Susan wouldn't have had those professional coping skills, so she would feel the crash rather strongly. That's why that scene is in there, in case you were wondering. Okay. Here's the part where I encourage you to go check out my Buy Me a Coffee page or my Patreon pages. You've heard it many times, so you know how it goes. I do appreciate the coffees. Thanks for your support.